You ever thought about this? What's the deepest desire of your heart? I'll be honest, like right now, I would love some tri-tip and potato salad. That sounds really good. Or maybe, maybe a, a juicy bacon cheeseburger. Anybody else? That sound really good right now? I know some of you are doing the vegan thing. Uh, great, that works for you. But I'm really craving that bacon cheeseburger, if you know what I mean. Maybe for you, the deepest desire of your heart is to get out of the snow. And you're thinking, I'd love to be on a beach in Mexico somewhere or someplace where the sun is shining and it's nice and toasty and I'm getting a little sunburn. That sounds really good. Maybe for you, you're thinking, you know, the deepest desire of my heart is to spend today with my Valentine, to sit right next to him, to hold their hand. Maybe for you, your deepest desire is to actually have a Valentine. We'll pray for you with that as, as well. While we all have these different desires, there's one desire that I think is, is consistent with all of us. It's one of the deepest desires that we have as a human being, and that is the desire for peace. We all have this deep longing inside of us for a sense of peace. We desire unity, not disunity. We desire harmony and not chaos. This is just ingrained in us the way that we are created to desire this kind of peace. This is why when we read through the scriptures, this is why the Old Testament prophets, they kept dreaming about the day. They kept dreaming and looking forward to the day when all the things that were corrupt and all the things were broken, when they would be made right. They dreamed where all the things with the jagged edges uh, would be made straight. They dreamed about when peace would replace war and conflict. They dreamed about the day when lambs would lie down with lions. They dreamed for peace. This is why the New Testament, oftentimes one of the, the favorite passages of Scripture we go to is Revelation chapter 21, where Jesus says, I will make all things new. And we know that verse that says, there will be no more crying, no more tears. Death shall be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We long for that day, don't we? We long for, for peace is what we want, is what we want. But the reality is, that's not normal in our communities and in our circumstances. We find that peace is hard to find in our life and in our community. We find ourselves so often embattled with division and chaos. In fact, even you look at us, you look at the church, the people of God. We are to be the redeemed people of God. As a church, we're to give a picture to the world of what our future is supposed to look like. We're a picture of what it's supposed to be like in heaven when God makes all things new. But if we're going to confess the truth, it's hard sometimes for us to find that kind of peace and unity within the church. You ever thought about this? You ever, any of you like to listen to the birds chirping in the morning? You like to get up early and you hear those birds going off and they, they, they play that beautiful song. Typically, it starts out where there's one bird and it starts out and you're like, man, this is a, a little virtuoso, a little bird just, just giving us a start. And you're like, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. Soon, all the other birds jump in and you end up finding yourself surrounded by all these birds giving this beautiful morning symphony. And we're like, how beautiful is this? Just to be able to hear those, wor those birds playing that beautiful music for us. What I find interesting is, is we find that so beautiful. It's beautiful to us, but that is not beautiful to those birds. Because to those birds, that is a territorial claim. Every one of those birds 
is trying to stake its own little claim in this dangerous world. And so every time we hear those birds making all those beautiful noises, those birds are saying, no, this is mine. This is my tree. This is my branch. You don't belong here. Get out. This is my spot. Kind of interesting to think about what we long for versus the reality. Last week, we started a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church, uh, probably a little bit like ours. Uh, It was a church in the city of Corinth, a church that Paul had planted five years prior. Paul was in Ephesus, and he received word that there were some, some issues in the church, some questions that the church had. So Paul writes this very pastoral letter addressing the issues he hears about in the church and trying to answer some of their questions. And that is what we find in the book of 1 Corinthians. In this letter, Paul's going to deal with some hard things with this church. But if you remember last week, Paul started in a very unique way where instead of jumping right in to all of the issues he wanted to deal with, he started and reminded the people of God of exactly who they are. That if we are a, a child of God, that we have been chosen by God, we've been set apart by him, we've been equipped by him, and we are held onto by him. Because who we are impacts what we do. Paul wanted us and wanted the church to understand who you are impacts what you do. It's not the other way around. No matter how difficult life would get, Paul wanted the Corinthians to remember that God is still in charge, that God is faithful. Here at Restoration Church, one of the things that we do is we preach through books of the Bible, just like 1 Corinthians. I think we've preached through 13 different books of the Bible since we planted in numerous other passages of Scripture. One of the reasons we do that is we want to look at the full counsel of God. We want to hear God's Word speaking to us so we don't pick and choose maybe some of our favorite topics or pick and choose our favorite verses. We want to allow God's Word to speak, and that means we don't get to skip over some of the hard stuff. And today is one of those days. Today's one of those passages that maybe we'd want to skip over. Maybe we'd want to set aside and say, that's a difficult conversation. Maybe we shouldn't go there. But something that's just connecting to my heart, I'm really thankful for the opportunity that God has given us to be in the book of 1 Corinthians and deal with our topic today. The text that we're in today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, Paul starts with some of these hard words he has for the church at Corinth. There's a gal by the name of Chloe, She's a businesswoman in the city of Ephesus, and she's got some business interests in Corinth. And some of her people have been in Corinth, and they come back and report to Paul, there are some issues in the church. There is some quarreling, some division, some factions that are happening in the church, Paul, that you planted five years ago. And so, as Paul begins to write this letter, this is the first issue that he's going to deal with because it's significant. The fact that there's division within the church. And Paul is going to give them an appeal for unity. I love this because this is Paul's pastoral heart. Paul loves the church in general. He loves the church at Corinth in particular. I'd say he loves the church at Restoration Church as well. We'll leave it at that. And so this is how he starts out this letter in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you. Notice he doesn't command them. He's not saying, I command you to do this. He's not authoritative with what he's asking them to do. He's writing this from a very pastoral perspective. He loves them. He has a concern for the church. He says, I appeal to you brothers. He used the term brothers. He's going to use this term again in verse 11. 
Uh, he wants to remind the church, saying, church, you are a family. You're a family. You're not just part of a club that you can come and go. You're not just, uh, you're not just acquaintances. You are a family. You belong to one another. And guess what happens with family? At the end of the day, you're stuck with them. At the end of the day, those are your people. And so here is Paul's appeal for unity based on that. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree, that there be no division among you, and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And that is Paul's appeal to unity. There's three things that he really highlights in this appeal for unity. The first thing he says is, I appeal to you that you would all agree. Now, that, t- that term that you agree literally means He's saying, I, I appeal to you that you all say the same thing. Let me tell you what that does not mean. That does not mean that the church has to be clones. That does not mean that everybody has to think the same way and, and believe the exact same things. It doesn't mean that everybody just has to be a yes man, that Paul makes the decisions and everybody else just signs off and says, okay, you're the guy, we'll do whatever you say. What this means is that in the church, there should be harmony. Very much like a husband and a wife. They may have different opinions, but they're working towards the same goal. They're walking in the same direction. There's this harmony where we're bringing these two things together with different backgrounds, different experiences, different expectations, but they're working together towards the same goal. They're moving in the same direction. That's the first thing Paul says. He says, church, I appeal to you that you agree, that you move in the same direction. Second thing he appeals for, he says, I appeal to you that there be no division among you. And what that means is Paul says, I want there to be no fractures in your relationships. Because often what happens when we have differing opinions, when we have differing sides about an issue, we begin to maybe assume the worst about one another. We judge one another. We make assumptions about one another. Well, I know because you believe this, then I know this is how you believe. We make assumptions about one another. We're not listening to one another. We, we spend more time talking over one another, preparing our response, trying to articulate our case about why we're right and why our belief is the right way. And this is what Paul's trying to do. He appeals to them based on how they interact with one another, how they engage with one another, to fix the hard-heartedness that has allowed division to come between them. So I want there to be no division among you. You've got to repair those broken relationships. And third thing, he appeals for unity. He says, I appeal to you to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, one of the things I want you to understand is unity does not equal uniformity. I already said this. Everybody doesn't have to think alike. This is the beauty of the body of Christ. The beauty of the body of Christ is that God brings all these different people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different life experiences, different circumstances, different politics. God brings us all together and makes us a family. God brings all these different backgrounds and brings us together. And that is part of the beauty of the body of Christ. And this is what God does. But if it doesn't mean that we all have to agree on this, what does he mean? That we be united of the same mind and the same judgment. I think he's thinking back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Paul says, I want you to have the same mind, 
That was of Christ Jesus. And Paul describes the mind of Jesus as Jesus was willing to give up his rights, his personal privileges, in order to take a lower place. In fact, the scripture says, though Jesus is in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took upon the form of a servant. Not being, or being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even to death on a cross. See, as Paul is instructing the church, I want you to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's saying, I want you to decide in your heart that you're going to allow the heart of Jesus and the heart of humility to control your interactions. He's saying, I want you to consider other people more significant than yourself. I want you as the people of God to be willing to suffer loss of your rights, of your privileges, of whatever, in order that the honor and the glory of Jesus would be advanced. Because Paul would say when, when Christians do that, when we consider others more significant, when we're willing to let our rights be, be stepped on, that brings the harmony in the church. God is, is honored and glorified, and that brings harmony in the church. So this is Paul's appeal. He's saying, I appeal to you, church, that you agree, that you have a common goal. Again, you look at Scripture, what is our common goal? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered it for us. He said to love God and love people. Paul saying, I want you to have the same mind that we are, are working towards the same goal to love God and to love people. Saying, I want there to be no division among you, which means we have to mend the, the fractures we have in our relationships with one another. And I want you to be united in the mind of Christ. See, I think it's a beautiful picture of harmony. I want us to think about the word of harmony, where we can have different opinions and different backgrounds but we can work together for the same goal. We have the common mission, the common purpose. This is where we become a beautiful symphony. In a symphony, you've got all these different parts, the horns, the violins, all the other things in the symphony. I think I've been to one of those in my life. I don't even know what goes on at the symphony. But the symphony, you've got all these parts that come together and it becomes something beautiful. That is what Paul's desire for the churches is that we would come together under the same goal and work together to accomplishing that. So that's Paul's appeal for unity. Now he's going to say, let me tell you where your division is coming from. Here's what he says, verse 11. It says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, that there are factions among you. Some of each, what I mean is each of you says, well, some of you say, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I follow Christ. See, there are factions in the church. This is what happens with the people of God. We become, uh, we allow factions to occur. Where it might be we follow a leader. It might be we're dedicated to a cause, an opinion, a conviction, a theological stance, whatever it happens to be a particular, a particular issue. And what happens is we latch on to that. We latch on to that. This happened in the church then, and it happens in the church now in our day and age, where we identify with a particular issue. We identify maybe the, the particular leader. 
Maybe it's an issue. Maybe it's the color of the carpet. Maybe it's the worship style that we prefer. And these things are, are not wrong. They're good. But we, we latch on to an idea or a leader, and in pride, that becomes a way that we separate ourselves from one another. That we exalt ourselves over other people, other Christians, by saying, my way is right. Your way isn't. My way is better. It becomes an issue of pride, of us separating ourselves from the other Christians. And Paul is emphatically saying, in the church at Corinth, as well as in our day and age, that division and disunity arises when we take our eyes off of Jesus and put our eyes onto anything else. That is where our disunity and division comes from, when we take our eyes off of Jesus. Church at Corinth, they had clung to these different leaders. It wasn't, not that these leaders were bad. Different leaders have different strengths. It's a good thing. Different, uh, different strokes for different folks. The problem was that as they adapted themselves and clung to a leader, that became a pride where they exalted themselves over one another. So some of you, some of them would have said, well, I'm of Paul. I'm of Paul. These were the loyalists. Paul had planted the church. And so these people said, man, man, he's a church planner. He, he was the, he, we follow him. He's our guy. Anything he says, we go with. Some people would have been drawn to Paul because Paul emphasized our religious freedom uh, and the end of the law. And so there's this freedom of following Christ and following Paul. And so some people said, I'm of Paul. Other people said, well, I'm of Apollos. Apollos was a guy who spent time in Corinth after Paul had left. And Acts chapter 18 describes for us a little bit about who Apollos is. Acts 18 describes Apollos as being an eloquent speaker who was competent in Scripture and fervent in spirit. This is a guy, if you can picture, this is a guy who would have been on debate team in school and would have won all the debates. This is a guy who was an eloquent speaker. He was a gifted speaker, compelling. People will draw on to him. He had that charismatic personality that people are like, man, he's awesome. I just want to be around him because he's so gracious and nice and good. Apollos also was a bit of an intellectual. And many people believe that Apollos had brought some of the intellectual elite in Corinth into the church. Some people said, well, that's me. I'm of Apollos. He's my guy. Other people said, well, I'm of, I'm of Cephas. This is Peter. Cephas means rock. Rock is Peter. Some said, I'm of Peter. Peter, if we know Peter, he was a traditionalist. He was the OG apostle. When Jesus left, it was Peter who was the, the guy. Peter had a Jewish background, and so he had a tendency maybe to be a little bit legalistic. He had the rules, and people sometimes like to follow the rules. And so some people said, well, I'm, I'm drawn to, to, to Peter. And these aren't bad. It's not bad to have these different leaders. But then there's a fourth group. There's another group. And this group said, well, well you might be of a Paul. You might be of Apollos. You might be of, uh, of Peter. But we, me, I'm of Christ. Now, every group should have been of Christ. But that's not what this group meant. This group said, we don't need human leaders. This is a group that maybe had a little um, anti-authority kind of built within them who maybe resisted a little bit submission. They said, well, we don't need to follow a leader. We just follow Jesus. He's our guy. We depend on him alone. We go straight to him. We don't have to talk to a leader. We just go straight to Jesus and let him tell us what to do. They kind of hid behind their spirituality. So here in Corinth, You've got these factions. You've got this division, this quarreling 
because people are latching on to a leader and they're feeling superior over their other brothers and sisters in Christ, and it created this division. The people of God are no longer working in harmony, but there's these factions, maybe making assumptions about one another, maybe making judgments about one another. And Paul hears about this. Paul's thinking about the church that he planted in Corinth, the church that he loved. Can you imagine the pain? And what a common Paul as he hears about what's happening in the church. Imagine Paul sitting there saying, this is not the way it was supposed to be. Thinks back, I remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, they will know we are Christians by the leaders we follow. Nope, that's not what Jesus said. They said, Jesus said, they'll know we are Christians by our theological stance. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, oh yeah, this is what Jesus said. They will know we are Christians by our love for one another. And I imagine Paul is thinking at this church that he loves and saying, where's the love? Where's the concern? Where's the care for one another? So Paul appeals to them for unity. He says, this is where your disunity comes from. It's because you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. And thirdly, he's going to point to them to find the key to finding unity in the people of God. And the key for us to find unity is that we keep our eyes fully on Jesus. He does so when he starts by, in verse 13 by asking these three rhetorical, rhetorical questions. He says, is Christ divided? Has Christ been parted out to, to different groups? Were there fragments of, of Jesus to different people? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. He has not been divided. He says, has Paul been crucified for you? No, Paul hasn't been crucified for you. Neither has Apollos or Cephas or anyone else. He says, have you been baptized in the name of Paul? No, when we baptize, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul is making the point this is a point of the entire book, and this is a point to, to us to find unity in the church. He's saying Jesus is the one who matters. Jesus is the answer. He, he's the truth that we stand on. He's our message. He's our motive. He is the center of all the church is and all the church does. It's all about Jesus. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about our own convictions and our own stances on things. It's all about Christ. That is what it is about. And when we as, as Christians, as a church, when we take our eyes off Christ, we're bound for division. We're bound for disunity. Because now my eyes aren't on Christ. Now my eyes are on, well, this is my leader. This is my cause. This is my conviction. Our eyes are no longer on Christ. And that leads to this disunity. He goes further in verse 14 and says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that none of you could say you were baptized in my name. Paul wants to say, he wants us to understand it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about what I say and what I think. It's all about Christ. That's what it's about. And he goes even further in verse 17 and says, Christ did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Not with words of, of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is not saying that baptism is not important. Baptism is, is good and right and important. 
Baptism is a, a formal outward sign that we are identifying before God, before the church, before the community. We're identifying that we are leaving our old identity be, behind and we have entered into new life as a child of, of God. We have a baptism service coming up in a couple weeks. If you have not been baptized, we'd love to be able to engage with you on that. Excited to be able to celebrate this. Baptism is good and right and important, but Paul is saying, my primary purpose, God did not send me to baptize. My primary purpose is not baptism. My primary purpose isn't fancy speech. It's not a particular issue. It's not a particular conviction. Paul would say, no leader or cause or opinion or conviction has died for you. No leader or cause or conviction can restore your relationship with God. Paul saying, my primary purpose, our primary purpose is the gospel. Our primary purpose is we keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on the cross. The, the gospel is the center of who the church is and what the church does. And as the church keeps our eyes on the cry, cross, this is when community flourishes. This is when the church accomplishes what we're set out to do, to love God and love people, to make a difference in our community. See, what had happened in the church at Corinth, here's a summary. They were taking their eyes off of Jesus. And the result was they were suffering through disunity. And Paul is, is saying very clearly, he wants them to hear and he wants us to hear today, that the cross of Christ, that is what brings harmony amongst the people of God. The cross of Christ brings mutual acceptance amongst the people of God. As Christians, somehow the love of God has got to permeate how we relate to one another. The cross and the love of God has got to be the primary lens for how we interact with one another. So what does that mean for us? That's what Paul said about the church at Corinth. What does that mean for us today at Restoration Church in 2021, February 14th? Paul's not saying we cannot have convictions. We, we have to see things the same. Again, this is where I want us to understand the body of Christ. The gospel is big enough for us to have diversity. I mean, things like philosophy of ministry. There's different ways to do ministry. That's okay. Different strokes for different folks. I've said that before. I think about, I think of the relationship with Jake and I. Jake and I, we've got a lot of things in common. I love Jake. I love working with him. We've got a lot of things in common. We also got a lot of things just different. There's differences about us. Jake Jake is relational. Jake is intellectual. Jake likes cats. Me? I'm an outreach guy. Let's just go and love our city. And I like dogs. Doesn't mean one of us is better than the other. In, 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 human, in harmony, we can work together to the same mission. Because it's not about me being right or you being wrong. It's about us working together. It's where the church, we can have... We always talk about worship wars. There was, years ago, there was these worship wars. Do we sing hymns? Do we sing uh, modern stuff? What do we sing? Listen, it's okay to have differing opinions on this. So it's one of the things I love about Restoration Church is you're going to get a mix of different types uh, of styles of worship based on whoever's uh, leading worship that Sunday. It's different, and that's okay. These things are important and valuable, but they don't affect the truth of the gospel. So we hold those things open-handed. We hold those things open-handed. The problem is, when those things become a greater priority, when those things become ultimate, when we hold those things with a close-handed view, 
That is when in pride we begin to dismiss others. That is when in pride we begin to think my way is right, your way is wrong. My way is better, your way isn't. This is the only way you are wrong. And that is when it creates disunity. That is when church becomes divided. You know what a divided church is? A divided church is a completely ineffective church. I'm going to pause just for a moment and I just, I want to share just from a pastoral heart this morning. Because I feel the pain and the weight in Paul's words. I love our church. I love the people that call Restoration Church home. I'm so proud of us. We're still here. (laughs) We're still here. But it breaks my heart to think about how divisiveness has infiltrated the church. Have you seen it? Have you felt it? We're not divided over leaders. I don't think we're divided over worship. What is it that divides us? How about COVID? How about the pandemic? But politics. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor this morning. I'm going to ask you not to dismiss what I'm about to say. This is going to be a challenging word for us, just as it was for the church at Corinth. And when we're challenged, sometimes there's this temptation to get upset, maybe to ignore what's about to be said. But in light of the significance of unity, in light of the fact that God has called us as a family, that God has given us a love for his church. I'm going to ask every one of us this morning to humble ourselves and consider, whether advertently or inadvertently, we might be contributing to the disunity within the church. Because from a pastoral perspective, doesn't seem like the love of God is always permeating how we relate to one another in this season. From a pastoral perspective, it feels like we are broken into factions. We've got this faction over here that's the, the maskers, and this faction over here that's the anti-maskers. We've got a faction that's a quarantine. I support quarantine. We've got the faction that is, I'm against quarantine. We've got the faction about guidelines and, and no guidelines. And honestly, when we have these conversations, it gets a little bit heated. People get upset. People get defensive. In fact, we've had people who say, I'm going to leave the church if I don't agree with the stance that you take. In fact, all of us listening today, we know people that we love and care about that are no longer attending church because of this issue. I read a statistic this week, or I heard a statistic this week. 20% of the church will leave 20% of people will leave the church in this season and never come back. Listen, this is not about who's right. This is not about whether we we mask or not mask, whether we quarantine or not. This is about how we interact with one another. That is what we're talking about today. I'm going to ask you just to do a little bit of of a heart check. Let me ask you some questions, and I want you just to be honest between you and God. 
Have you had any animosity towards the church, towards other in the church, towards the leaders of the church based on these issues? Have you judged another Christian who has handled things differently than you have? Have you made assumptions about the people who view this issue differently than you do? Have you assumed, well, if you are doing these things, then that must mean you're afraid. Scripture says, don't be afraid, so that means you're wrong. You made that assumption? Have you made the assumption that, well, clearly masking is the only way for, it's the only way for us to love our neighbor, so if you're not masking, you're not loving. Have you made that assumption? Let me ask you this. Have you actually talked to somebody? Actually sat down and talked to someone with a different view? Have you listened to them with empathy? Not just to talk to them so you can argue why you're right. Have you actually listened to say, what brought you to this point? Tell me your story. Have you made passive-aggressive comments? Saying something without actually saying something. I know some of us are saying, well, I haven't said that. Has it been in your heart? I'm pretty sure Scripture says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I'm not here to take sides. I'm here because I have a burden for the church. And I imagine Satan... Right now, Satan has got his little minions around him and they've got champagne glasses. They're toasting one another. Look at what we've done. Look at the disunity of the church. In fact, years ago, Paul Harvey wrote a little story called If I Were Satan, If I Were Your Enemy. Samantha was reading some of that this week and she, she wrote down this thing, If I Were the Enemy and Satan, based off something that Jenny Allen had written. I thought I'd share some of this. If I were Satan, I would make you believe that your fight is against a pandemic, against flesh and blood, and not against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of, e of darkness and evil and spiritual forces. If I were your enemy, I would make you label other Christians, other friends as enemies. I'd make you believe that your differences are more significant than the unity you have in Christ. Yeah. If I was your enemy, I'd make you believe the chasm of disunity has grown beyond repair. That I'd get you to give up entirely and walk away from one another. If I was your enemy, I wouldn't necessarily tempt you with bad things. That would be too obvious. I would distract you. Make you think that your rights are being taken. Make you fear that things are out of your control so that you turn on one another. If I was your enemy, I'd make you focus on controlling circumstances instead of allowing you to love God and love your brothers and sisters. I'd cause you, instead of loving them, to condemn them. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said in Matthew 12, a city and a house that divided against itself will not stand. We cannot let Satan continue to divide the church. 
We can't let them do this. I want you to hear me on this. Listen, COVID is not the issue. COVID is, is important. I want every one of us to, to make a, uh, understand why we believe why we believe. There should be thought that goes into it. We should be considering the weight of Scripture, and every one of us need to make the best decision for ourselves. But I'd say COVID is not our, the cause of our division, our disunity. The cause of our division and unity is because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. We've taken our eyes off the gospel. We're not allowing the love of God to permeate how we relate to one another. And so the application for today, the application for us, is to hear the words of Paul, to hear the words of Jesus, to hear the words of Scripture that says we are the family of God. We are the family of God. The Word of God appeals to us that we would agree, not about COVID, but we'd agree on why we exist to love God and love people that we'd agree that we exist to, to, to make a difference in our city. The word of God appeals to us that there be no divisions among us, that we would make right the relationships that have been fractured, that we would apologize for the hardness of our heart, that we can be fully convinced in our own mind that we're right, yet still have some animosity in our heart to someone who doesn't see things the way that we do and that makes us wrong. We can have differing opinions, but when, the, when we allow the animosity to step in, that is when we are wrong. The word of God would appeal to us to be united in the same mind and judgment of Christ. That in humility, we would consider others more important. That we'd actually assume the best about others instead of assuming the worst. And above all else, the word of God would tell us today that our disagreements about COVID do not outweigh what we have in common in Christ. As a family of God, we've got to stop talking about one another, begin talking to one another, listening to one another, empathizing with one another. We've got to be considerate towards one another. We have to refuse and refuse and refuse to allow bitterness and animosity to creep into our heart to those who see things differently than we do. And most important, and here, here's the best thing I'd invite you to do with us. Jake shared this morning, our elders had decided a couple of weeks ago to spend a few days in fasting and prayer for our church. We've extended that out to the church. We've asked and said, we're going to take 30 days. We're asking people to take one day. Take one day and fast for two meals. Fast for breakfast and lunch. And while you're fasting, would you be in prayer over the church? You, you can sign up for this, restoration.com slash Sunday. You know the first thing we ask you to pray for on that? We've got some things we're asking the church to pray for. The first thing we ask you to pray for is the unity and the strength of our church. Maybe that's the best thing that we can do.